Gi Kingdom of Aka Maki, or the Eastern Shore of Virginia, in the 17th century, by Jennings Cropper Wise, member of the Virginia Historical Society. This is from 1911. Chapter 15 says here the Negro and the slave. It is generally accepted fact that the Dutch were responsible for the introduction of slaves into Virginia in 1619. All right, again, my famous phrase, drop nation, <laughs> dodge the hijack, big time, right? First of all, it wasn't Dutch, it was just a Dutch ship. It was English, privateers or pirates, right? That brought some people that they had taken from a Spanish ship off the coast of Veracruz, Mexico. That ship was coming from Lisbon, Portugal. It wasn't coming from Africa. And they came in as indentured servants they, with a contract and who eventually they got their freedom. So it's not what you're thinking about what they're trying to tell you here. The first slaves, all right? Dodge the hijack big time. It was several years later before the first Negro appeared on the Eastern shore. Again, dodge the hijack again. I'm keep telling you. What you mean? Again, you've been here for years since creation. What you mean, First Negro? Copper-colored tribes of America. And a decade had elapsed before slaves were brought to the peninsula. All right, you see that? There was no slaves until a decade later. The first Negroes in Accomac, of whom we have any knowledge, were two free citizens of color, Anthony Johnson and his wife, Mary. They were so highly thought of by the white inhabitants of the country. Uh, white. Remember, white, what does free white mean? So they were highly thought of, right? They weren't meaning, meaning nobody thought of them as slaves or anything like that. All right, or foreigners. It was just like them. That when in 1652, they had the misfortune to lose by fire after great service and etc., after dwelling as law-abiding citizens in the country for over 30 years, they were exempted from paying taxes. That's how good they got treated. Supposedly, they had lost a lot of their property or something happened where they lost a lot in the fire. While no Negroes are mentioned in the census of 1623, <laughs> what do you mean no Negroes? I bet you a lot of the people that are in that census are so-called Negroes, Sephardic and Moorish people. We've already gone over this. I check out my videos, the not-so-English colony of Jamestown in Roanoke, okay? The Johnsons must have lived there at that time. So he even estimated it, even though there's no Negroes mentioned in the census, because they weren't calling people by Negro or white back then. Still, the Johnsons were in that list, and they didn't call them Negroes. The descendants of these free Negroes were, for many years, respected property owners and owned, in addition to much land, a number of slaves. They owned what? A slaves who, these colored people, color, free citizens of color, huh? Free citizens of color. They owned what? Slaves, a number of slaves. In 1654, 100 acres of land lying along the Pongo Tea Creek were granted to Richard Johnson, the son of Anthony, the former being a carpenter by trade and a skilled mechanic this track was contiguous to the estate of john johnson also a negro also a negro and that of anthony johnson so these are the offspring of anthony and mary these are the children and grandchildren later a dispute and we got the tree done 
We got the genealogical tree done, so I'm going to show you guys. Later, a dispute arose as to the title to the land, and we find the following entry. Whereas John Johnson, Negro, has this day made complaint in court that John Johnson, Sr., detaineth a patent for 450 acres, which John Johnson, Jr., claims. So he's going up against his dad. Listen to this. John Johnson, Sr. is ordered to appear in court. Anthony Johnson entered suit soon after this for the purpose of recovering his Negro servant who had been appropriated by Robert Parker. This is Anthony Johnson trying to get John Kayser back. Remember, he sued Robert Parker who had him and then the court ruled for in favor of Anthony Johnson making John Kayser his servant for life. Okay, this is what they're referencing. Okay, in this book right here, Historical uh, Virginia. It's called the Free Negro Heads of Families in the United States in 1830. Together with a brief treatment of the free Negro by Carter G. Woodson, PhD. This is right in the beginning in the foreword. It says here on the second paragraph says the aim of this report like that on free Negro owners of slaves in the United States in 1830. We have that book too. We're going to get into that one is to promote the further study of a neglected aspect of our history as stated elsewhere most of these free negroes have been forgotten all right so-called free negroes all right for persons supposedly well informed in history are surprised to learn today that about a half a million almost one-seventh of the negroes of this country all right you heard that were free they were free prior to the emancipation in 1865 who was really getting freed in that time? Because half a million or a seventh of the so-called Negroes were already free in 1865. All right, they're letting you know here. It is hardly believed that a considerable number of Negroes were owners of the slaves themselves. And in some cases controlled large plantations. All right. They're letting you know straight up we, the drop right here. See, you got the whole thing confused how they told you you know kunta quinte you know they told you roots they told you africans coming and you working in chains all your life everybody until 1865 from 1619 to 1865 they told you right but that's a, a fantasy that's a fairy tale that's that's fictional writing plagiarized fictional writing the truth is there was free people here, free so-called Negroes that were never, ever slaves or indentured servants. And they had land and they had actual indentured servants themselves, so-called slaves. They're letting you know here. They control large plantations. It wasn't just white people, all right? So-called whites. We're going to see, all right? White, we already know white Europeans came as indentured servants two right so who's really getting emancipation in 1865 we're in the smithsonian magazine it says here the horrible fate of john kaiser the first black man to be declared slave for life in america you, you thought they were all already slaves for life that's what you thought right actually this was the first person that was legally officially put in perpetual servitude and treated as chattel it says here, black people in early America weren't slaves. After this lawsuit, they could be. 
you understand what's going on here? Smithsonian Magazines. Again, the same me. It says, black people in early America weren't slaves. But after this lawsuit, they could be. It says, the only day definitely connected to John Kaiser's life is this day in 1654, 1655. Look at the times. All right, 1650s. It's not when he was born, when he achieved something or when he died. It's when he became a slave. Kaiser was originally in what? An indentured servant. These weren't slaves. Remember, these times everybody was an indentured servant. Contract. Which meant he was practically a slave in some senses. But what was bought or sold wasn't him. It was his contract of indenture. You hear? It wasn't your person. It wasn't your body. It was your service. It was your work that they wanted. Your labor. Your contract of indenture. Which obligated him to work for its holder for the period of it said. At the end of that time, indentured servants who could be of any race were considered legally free and sent out into the world. Tinian says, this might sound like a rough deal, but indenture was how the British colonizers who lived in what would later become the United States managed to populate the land and get enough people to do the backbreaking work of farming crops like tobacco in the South. Hold up, Smithsonian Magazine. Are you telling me it's not Africans that the British used to populate the land and get enough people to do backbreaking work to farm the crops like tobacco in the South? So what's the deal? Now they're telling us it's British colon it's British indentured servants they had. Where were they getting these indentured servants, these British, right? We already know the story. Convicts, undesirables, Indians. Not Africans. They ain't going to Africa to get indentured servants. That wasn't part of the venture of Virginia Company. People who survived their period of indenture, may, many didn't, went on to live free lives in the colonies. All right? They got freedom. Often after receiving some kind of small compensation like clothes, land, or tools to help set them up. Again, land, 50 acres. That was the incentive that caused many poor whites. And now they want to say the poor whites to indenture themselves and their families and move to the so-called new world. It wasn't just so-called whites. That's the hijack. You got to dodge it, right? We're going to break the spell. We're going to break these many layers. We're going to uncover all these layers. You got to follow me, right? You got to go back to the other videos if you're new, right? There was also people of dark complexion, people of color who were what you call black Britons, black Irish, black Scots, black Germans, black Swedish, black Portuguese, black Spaniards being indentured over here too. It wasn't just white poor people. All right. So touch the hijack on that. But they letting you know here, slavery didn't exist how you were told, right? But Africans who were indentured were often captured and brought over against their will. So now they're letting you, now they're adding their hijack. Because they got to add that, you know, because they, they know so-called Negroes were indentured too. They weren't slaves. So now they got to add, try to figure out where they came from, right? So they got to go with the hijack, right? No genealogy is leading back to Africa. In fact, genealogy is actually correlating with what we're studying. Didn't these poor whites also get brought here against their will? See, this is what I'm saying. See how they're throwing the hijack in a little bit. They want to act like they came in on their own. No, a lot of these people were what? Spirited away, kidnapped, right? Convicts. This was a penal what? A penal colony. They were dumping convicts over here against their will. That's what happened to the holders of Kaiser's indenture. Anthony Johnson. All right. Anthony Johnson. Right. It says Johnson served out his contract and went on to run his own 
tobacco farm and hold his own indentured servants among them Kaiser. You understand what's going on here? This is a person of color. Anthony Johnson was what you call a so-called Negro. All right. He wasn't an African. There's no proof of him being African in any way. So Anthony Johnson was an indentured servant. He wasn't a slave. He got his freedom. After he did his contract, his work, he provided his service. He got his freedom. And what did he do? He got his own land. He got his own indentured servants slash slaves. And he had Kaiser as one of his servants. At this time, the colony of Virginia had very few black people in it. Johnson was one of the original 20. Dodge the hijack. Because you've been here since creation. You're the American Indians. What do you mean there's no black people in Virginia? You understand the, how big the hijack is in that statement they're making right there? That's a very bold statement. Smithsonian Magazine. They can never prove that right. And we can definitely prove them wrong. We know that. And the calling Virginia again, we already know. We just read, right, the invention of the white race that white race that had no power it didn't exist it wasn't even in records till 60 years after 1619 and this whole time anthony johnson existed and that's why i came over to read this anthony johnson's time that word white never existed in records it was just englishmen and european christians remember christians that included both complexions dark and light dark and pale after a disagreement about whether or not Kaiser's contract was lapsed, a court ruled in favor of Johnson, and Kaiser saw the status of his indenture turn into slavery. Where he not his contract was considered property, Kaiser claimed that he had served his indenture of seven or eight years, and seven more years on top of that. He even did 14. I mean, he did double. The court sided with Johnson, who claimed that Kaiser was his slave for life, his slave for Live, we're talking about two so-called Negroes battling it out. We're talking about somebody, a supposed slave, right? Going to court in the 1650s. You think you know history? We're talking about 1650s here. People of color, what you call a so-called African-American today. Going to court, fighting for their freedom, enslaving other so-called uh, people of color and making them become their property for life. This was the first official slave now you want to talk about first slaves that came no this is the first slave first chattel property because of another so-called negro it was a black man right so-called black man that owned another so-called black man that's the official first slave or life okay. the illegal beginning of american negro slavery again the illegal beginning of american negro slavery and continuing, it says, a Negro plaintiff wins a precedent for slavery. Finally, this period of equivocal judicial recognition was climaxed with the ironic case of Johnson versus Parker in the Northampton County Court in Virginia, 1653. Anthony Johnson was the first free Negro, dodged the hijack, in North America and the first Negro landowner. Again, Dodge the hijack. He was also one of the first substantial holders of indentured servants and later of slaves. In 1653, one of Johnson's Negro servants named Kaiser complained that his seven-year term of indenture had expired, but that Johnson 
continued to hold him in, servi in service illegally. One Robert Parker demanded that Johnson release Kaser amid threats that he, Parker, would testify for Kaser in court that Johnson held him illegally, resulting under local law and a possible forfeiture of lands by Johnson. Under this duress, Johnson freed Kaser, who promptly bound himself to Parker for seven years. So this dude Parker helped Kaser, but then he said, all right, but now you got to serve me for seven years. You see how slick they were, right? Realizing that he had been duped, Johnson sued Parker to repossess Kaser. The court ruled for Johnson, of course, declaring that Parker was illegally detaining Kaser from his rightful master, who legally held Kaser for the duration of his life. You hear this? This is the first case on record of a judicial determination of Negro servitude for life, a precedent set by a Negro as plaintiff. So, you see what you see what what you're hearing. You hear this, people. Basically, this was the first person that was deemed an official slave for life, and it was through the help of another Negro. Okay. Right now we're in this book is called The Free Negro in Virginia, 1619-1865 by John H. Russell. We're going to read on chapter two of this book, The Origin of the Free Negro Class. It says here, were any or all of these Negroes permitted to realize the freedom to which servants were entitled under the laws and customs of servitude? In the records of the county courts dating from 1632 to 1661, Negroes are designated as servants, Negro servants, or simply as Negroes, but never in the records. Again, listen to this. Never, never in the records which we have examined were they termed slaves. All right. They were never called slaves. By an order of the general court, a Negro brought from the West Indies to Virginia in 1625 was declared to belong to Sir Francis Wyatt, the governor, as his servant not a slave there is nothing in the record which indicate that servant meant the same as slave again there is nothing stop adding stuff stop adding the african stories the same kunta kinta movies stop adding that there is nothing in the record which indicates that servant meant the same as slave among the 23 african servants all right dodge the hijack what african servants enumerated in 1624 was a Negro man named Anthony, all right? Dodge the hijack. We already know Anthony, all right? We're going to show you again. Anthony was coming from England. Coming from England, it's conjecture to say he was African, okay? And a Negro woman named Mary, which was who was also coming from England, serving under different masters. In the county court records of Northampton of date February 28, 1652, is the following order upon g humble petition of anthony johnson negro and mary his wife and their information to g court that they have been inhabitants in virginia above 30 years consideration being taken of their hard labor and honored service performed by the petitioners of this county for g obtaining of their livelihood and g great loss they have sustained by an unfortunate fire with their present charge to provide for all right they had a fire be it therefore fit in order that from the day of the day there hereof, during their natural life, the said Mary Johnson and two daughters of Anthony Johnson, Negro, 
be disengaged and freed upon payment of tax, taxes and levies in Northampton County for public use. Subtracting 30 or more years from 1652, the date of this court order, we find that Anthony Johnson and possibly the woman who became his wife were inhabitants of Virginia before 1622. If additional evidence is required to establish the fact that Anthony Johnson and his family were free in 1652, it is contained in a land patent of 1651 assigning him to a fee simple 250 acres of land or in the records of a suit which he maintained in the county court in 1655. Just what part of the period of over 30 years of Anthony Johnson's residence in the colony was a term of servitude or how long before 1652 he had enjoyed his freedom is not clear, okay? They don't know when he was freed from his indenture. This Anthony Johnson who came as a servant, right? Whether it was four to seven years, you know, which one was it? We don't, they don't know. Could have been four. He could have only worked for one or two, three years. You know, maybe a little longer. But by 1651 and 52, he was free. The term of service for white servants was not uniform either, right? So they didn't have a set date either. So-called white servants, right? Free white. <laughs> Being dependent upon the conditions of the contract. Contract. A contract. Contract. An indenture. All right. So now we're in the Journal of Negro History. By Carter G. Woodson, Volume 1. This is from 1916. Uh, and we go all the way to page 233 of this book, which is Volume 1, Number 3. Uh, it says, Colored Freemen as Slave Owners in Virginia. All right. Colored what? Freemen. Slave Owners. With no evidence beyond this explicit admission in the written law of the right of free Negroes to own servants, and slaves of their own race, it could scarcely be doubted that there were in the colony colored men known to the framers of this law who held to service persons of their own race and color. But when the court records are open and the strange story of the free Negro, Anthony Johnson's strange story is a strange story. You get it? It's a strange story. They're going to tell you it's a strange story. Dodge the hijack. This is so strange. What do you mean a black man owned another black man? What do you mean he made him become a slave for life? What are you talking about, Kurimel? That's a strange story. Just like this journal saying, Anthony Johnson and his slave John Kayser is read and understood. We are forced to a realization of the impartial attitude of the law toward black masters, not only in its outward expression, but also in its actual application. The story of relation of these two black settlers in the young colony is worth relating in the quaint language of the times, word for word, as it appears in the manuscript records. It says here, the deposition of Captain Sam Goldsmith, taken in open court, 8th March 1654, saith that being at G House of Anthony Johnson, Negro, about the beginning of November. Remember, Anthony Johnson is a Negro, right? In the beginning of November, last to receive a host of tobacco, a Negro called John Kayser, came to his depot and told him that he came into Virginia for seven or eight years of indenture, yet he had demanded his freedom of Anthony Johnson. His master further said he had kept him servant seven years longer than he should or ought 
and desired that his depont would see ye, he might have no wrong, whereupon your depont demanded of Anthony Johnson his indenture. All right, so they're saying he's complaining. John Kayser's going to this dude saying, yo, man, he held me. He already worked for seven years and he held me on top of that another seven years and I, I need you to help me with my indenture. I guess he's trying to give his indenture to him. It says, Anthony Johnson said he had ye Negro for his life. But Mr. Robert George Parker said they knew that G said Negro had an indenture in one Mr. Sandy's hand on the other side of G. Bain. Further said Mr. Robert Parker and his brother George, if the said Anthony Johnson did not let go of Negro, go free, he said Negro John Kaysa would recover most of his cows from him, G. said Johnson. Then Anthony Johnson and this debt did suppose was in a great fears. Anthony Johnson's son-in-law, his wife and his own two sons persuaded the old Negro Anthony Johnson to set the said John Kaser free. All right, so that was when he set him free. And then he went to court, right? He went to court and he got him back for life. It says John Kaser was not, however, permitted to enjoy long his freedom. Johnson decided to petition the county court to determine whether John Kaser was a slave for life or a servant for seven years of indenture. The court record of the suit is as follows. All right, it says, whereas complaint was this day made to G court by G humble petition of Anthony Johnson, the Negro, Mr. Robert Parker, that he detaineth one John Kaser, another Negro, right? Another, a Negro, and a Negro. We're talking about a court case, 1650s people, all right? The plaintiff's servant under pretense, yet the said Kaser is a free man. The court seriously considering a maturely weighing G premises do find that G said Mr. Rod Parker most unrightly keepeth said Negro John Kaser from his right master Anthony Johnson, as it appears by the deposition of Captain Small Goldsmith in many probable circumstances. Be it therefore G judgment of G court and ordered that G said uh, John Kaser Negro shall forthwith be turned into G service of his said master Anthony Johnson and that the said Mr. Robert Parker make payment of all charges in the suit and execution so they returned johnson i mean yeah john kaser over to johnson they the court returned it to him and it says and thus sustaining the claim of anthony johnson to perpetual service of john kaser the court gave judicial sanction to the right of negroes to own slaves of their own race indeed no earlier record to our knowledge has been found of judicial support given to slavery in virginia to judicial support no earlier records it didn't exist anywhere so there was no records right of any judicial support for chattel slavery before that in Virginia, do you understand that? 1650s, it didn't exist. And additional gleanings from the record show that this black slave master, again, this black slave master was a respected citizen of wealth. He had money. He was a very wealthy black slave master and one of the very earliest Negro arrivals upon this continent. If indeed he was not one of the first 20 brought in the Dutch man of war in 16. 19 you see that every doubt of the correctness of this assertion should be banished by a perusal of the somewhat detailed evidence upon which the conclusion is based the discovery of the fact that anthony johnson was a slave owner led to a further examination of court records and land patents for additional information concerning him in the court records of norrington county in 1653 it was found recorded that anthony johnson negro has this day made his complaint 
refugee court that John Johnson Sr. most unrightly detained and patent of his for 450 acres of land, which patent John Johnson Negro claimeth and boldly affirmeth to be his land. You see, another, he went to court with another what so-called Negro, another John Johnson. All right. They're fighting with some land. A search in the early land patents of the state revealed a grant by the authorities of the state of 250 acres of land in Northampton County to Anthony Johnson, a Negro. The grant was made as head rights. Remember what a head right was. This was how they received indentured servants. And every indentured servant they got, they got 50 lands. The colony gave the person 50 acres for every indentured servant the person had or brought over from Europe. All right, so the head right system in the colony still upon the importation by the Negro of five persons in the colony. So again, the grant was made as head rights upon the importation by the Negro of five persons into the colony. So he got five people, right? So that would be 250 acres, 50 acres for each. Still pursuing the record of this black freeman who was able to maintain a slave, the following was discovered in the records of the county court of Norton. So they're finding all kinds of stuff when they study Anthony Johnson's history. All right, now we're going to read uh, from this book, Slavery in the United States, a social, political, and historical encyclopedia. All right, Slavery in the United States by Junius P. Rodriguez. This is volume one. Just here in 1654, in Northampton County, Virginia, Anthony Johnson, himself a free black, filed suit in court to make his black indentured servant, John Kaser, a servant for life. This is the first recorded case in Virginia civil court where an indentured servant was effectively transformed into a slave or chattel, right, for life. But before 1654, down here it says in 1651, in Northampton, Virginia, Anthony Johnson, the free, the same guy, right? A free black man, free, imported five servants. Did that include John Kaser? How did these five servants? Maybe. And again, imported from where? Most likely Europe, which entitled him to receive a 200-acre land grant along the Poole Gothique River. Johnson and a group of other free blacks attempted to establish an independent black community at one point, the community contained 12 homesteads. All right, do you hear what they're saying here? He's not the only free black. Remember they were saying he was the only free black, the Johnsons? There was numerous independent black families there, independent black communities. They were trying to establish 12 homesteads. Says here, black slave owners. Slavery in the United States has traditionally been portrayed as an institution that was based on race. Generally speaking, this conviction is correct, but its propagation has led to the almost universal belief that all slave owners were white and that all slaves were of African descent. Again, it's not true, right? They're letting you know that's not true. That's not true. That's a false story. In reality, although there were no white slaves, dodge the hijack, we have a whole series, white servitude. Right, European indentured servants included so-called pale or fair-skinned people and Negroes. There were black slave owners from the colonial period to the Civil War. They were what? Black slave owners, not just in the 1800s when they were getting their freedom. No, since 
the colonial period since they were colonizing right 1600s to the civil war there was black slave owners census records deeds of sale wills of free blacks providing for the disposition of slaves and records of freedom suits bought by slaves against free blacks attest that there were numerous black masters in the united states numerous numerous black masters black masters name what slave master surname black masters in the united states black slave owners as did white owners obtained slaves by inheritance gifts and purchase same thing records identify anthony johnson as perhaps the earliest black slave owner for johnson a former slave himself acquired john kayser a slave in the 1650s a local court sanctioned the right of free blacks to own slaves when it ruled not to give kayser his freedom when he sued johnson for it. Yeah, Virginia Commonwealth University, Emancipators, Protectors, and Anomalies, free black slave owners in Virginia. An anomaly because you're a, a black person who's a master, so they have to try to write this somehow as an anomaly because they're finding this in the record. And on page 321, it says, uh, free black slave ownership was less complicated when it began in the 1650s. When it began in the 1650s, black slave owners in the 1650s so what are you talking about african slavery and, and and blacks have been oppressed and there was people who actually oppressed their own people so it's, it wasn't about a complexion thing is what i'm trying to show you here right free black ownership was less complicated when it began in the 1650s but when it threatened to grow legislators took quick action to limit it more famous than either Archibald batty or pharaoh shepherd was anthony johnson of the eastern shore one of the earliest so-called afro-americans to own any kind of bondsman in virginia indeed in 1655 johnson successfully petitioned for judicial reversal of a court-ordered emancipation of his servant one year earlier but johnson would be one of the last of his people in virginia to next turn to have and hold another human in servitude yeah sure so again anthony first so-called person to hold somebody in perpetual servitude chattel as chattel property for life a, a black man on another so-called black man, John Kayser. Look at the case. It's great life and build in an open Mijas channel. Open Mijas Sioux Nation is the name. All right, make sure to subscribe and like. All right, y'all. So I wanted to. Uh, next thing I wanted to go into was the Johnson family history. Um, the once we start reading that the uh, Johnson family history, it's actually going to get into this. So you know, again. Um, you know, uh, you know, we're seeing we're seeing these these dates when these people were born and different things like that. So, um, in this history, when I read it, um, it you know, of course, some things are, are left out of it because once again, a lot of this stuff, a lot of this information comes from uh, court cases um, or you know anything that happened where people were uh put into some kind of um documentation you know that had to do with uh the state or the government or whatnot so i'm gonna get into this here real quick uh johnson family so here's anthony johnson we just got finished reading an article about him so anthony johnson negro probably born about 1600 was free before january 10th 1647 when he purchased a calf from James Barry by deed, proved in Northampton County, Virginia. 
He patented 250 acres in Northampton County at Great Naswatok Creek for the transportation of five persons, including his son, Richard Johnson, on July 24, 1651. His wife, Mary, and their two daughters were excused from paying taxes by the Northampton County, Virginia court on February 28, 1652. And it says they have been inhabitants in Virginia about 30 years, ordered that from the day of the date hereof, the said Mary Johnson and two daughters of Anthony Johnson Negro be disengaged and free from payment of taxes. So now we're going to get into John Kayser, his, his Negro servant. Okay. His Negro servant, John Kayser, attempted to gain his freedom by claiming that he had been imported as an indentured servant. In 1653, Kayser appealed to Captain Samuel Goldsmith, who tried to intervene on his behalf, but Johnson insisted that he had a he had ye Negro for his life. And that's what Kudameo was just uh, explaining about. Um, Johnson's wife and children tried to persuade him to release Kayser and his neighbor, Robert Parker, and that's the guy we was just talking about that sued him, apparently allowed Kayser to stay on his property. However, Johnson bought suit in Northampton County Court against Parker in 1654 for detaining his Negro servant, John Kayser and the court upheld Johnson's right to hold Kayser as a slave. Okay. In 1665, he and his wife, Mary, his son, John, and his wife, Susanna, and their slave, John Kayser, moved to Somerset County, Maryland with Randall Rebel and uh, Ann Toft, who claimed them and many whites as head rights for 2,350 acres of land. Wow. Um, Anthony and his wife sold 250 acres of their own land, left 50 acres to their son Richard, and took 14 head of cattle, a mare, and 18 sheep with them. On September 10, 1666, he leased 300 acres in Somerset County on the south side of Wicomico Creek and Wicomico 100 called Tony's Vineyard for 200 years. Oh, yeah. old saying, and the easiest thing, the uh, easiest way to hide something from a Negro is put it in a book. Huh. Yep, and then you, you know, you get in school, and then you're just indoctrinated on, you know, roots from the beginning, root slave trade story. Yeah, yeah from the beginning, from before you even, uh, before you even six years old, <laughs> you reading that uh, you're a slave, and that's it. So why, why even read anymore? Yeah. Actually, that's actually a good plan, though, when you think about it, because if they can get you while you're young, you ain't going to want to know anything else, because just hearing all my people is nothing but a slave just puts you in, like, a low vibe and just keeps you just like, uh, whatever, I'm, I'm, I don't care anymore. I know what it was. Mm-hmm. It makes you not even care about, you know, wanting to be on this land or be here. You're like, well, I ain't from here, so why should I care about here? Yeah. Okay, too. Oh, yeah. Would you say legacy? I said self-hate also. If you, right. all you are is a slave, I mean, what does that say? Yep, and then they make you think you're African, you deny what your grandparents told you, what your family told you. So, 
we got we got official records, official history that it's not a conspiracy, right? Uh, telling us the real deal. These people were not slaves. They were indentured servants. They had contracts. They got their freedom. They had land and everything. Anthony apparently died before August 1670 when a jury of white men in Accomack County decided that his land should be besieged since he was a Negro and by consequence an alien. His lease in Somerset County, Maryland was renegotiated by his widow Mary for 99 years with the provision that her son John and Richard would assume the lease after her death. Her slave John Kaser recorded his livestock brand in court with her consent on September 3rd, 1672, and she recorded her mark a few weeks later on September 26, 1672. He was called John Kaser Negro when he was a witness to a power of attorney by which she assigned her son John, John authority over her property and authority to sue for some debts in Virginia. And he was also witness on September 3rd, 1672, to her deed of gift to her grandchildren. She called herself Mary Johnson Negro, the relict of Anthony Johnson Negro deceased, in the deed by which she gave cattle to her three grandchildren, Anthony, Richard, and Francis. Uh, she was called Mary Johnson of, how you say that, Kiowa? Uh, that's what Amico. That's a little deeper. With Comico Moco or some, something like that. And then it says in July 1676, when she purchased a mare and assigned it to John Corasala, her slave. So now they're spelling his name all crazy. She was called executor of Anthony Johnson, deceased on January 17, 1690, when Edward Rebel acted as her attorney in a suit she brought against Accomack County Court. She was living in Sussex County, Delaware in March 1693-94 when Mary Oakey appeared in court to support her complaint that her son John was not maintaining her as he had promised. The children of Anthony and Mary Johnson were, we got John say 1631, Richard born about 1632, a daughter excused from paying tax by the February 1652 Northampton County Court, perhaps of um, Joan Johnson, who in 1657 received 100 acres in Northampton County from the Abenda Bay King of New Saints. A daughter excused from paying taxes by the February 1652 Northampton County Court. Next, we got John Johnson, born, say, 1631, received a grant for 550 acres in Northampton County on May 10th, 1652. A great uh, Naswatik Creek adjacent to 200 acres granted Anthony Johnson for the importation of 11 persons, including Mary Johnson. He received this patent after, being, after suing a white resident of the county, also named John Johnson, who tried to illegally take possession of the land. Oh, so you mean to tell me that Negroes was winning court cases? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. They're supposed to yeah. be slaves. All right, so the main point about, you know, why we want, I wanted to uh, talk about Anthony Johnson. He was an indentured servant. He eventually got his freedom after he did his contract, his time that he was bound. 
and he eventually had a lot of acres we just read thanks to open me how he found that uh, free Negro uh, Johnson family record uh, and it actually matched with what I had uh, read before about Anthony Johnson suing to get his uh, slave back so imagine a Negro suing to get another Negro back for life making his indentured for life and real quick in Wikipedia Anthony Johnson it says colonist, right? It don't say slave. He's a colonist. It says, bro, a black Angolan dodged a hijack. There's no proof of that. He's known for achieving freedom and wealth in the early 17th century calling of Virginia. All right. He was one of the first African-American dodged a hijack property owners and had his right to legally own a slave recognized by the Virginia courts. Held as an indentured servant in 1621, he earned his freedom after several years and was granted land by the colony. He was an indentured servant. He later became a successful tobacco farmer in Maryland. He was a plantation owner. He attained great wealth after completing his term as an indentured servant, and he has been referred to as the Black Patriarch of the first community of Negro property owners in America. Oh, really? He's the Black, so-called Black, Black power, right? Black Patriarch. He had slaves. Now, look at this. Early life. In the early 1620s, slave traders captured him in Angola, it says. That's no proof of that. All right? And gave him the name Antonio and brought him to the Americas where he was sold to colonists in Virginia. Now, look at this. There's no quote for this one. This line, there's no quote. Right? Now, it says, and the next line says, as an indentured servant, Antonio worked for a merchant at the Virginia Company. Now, we have quotes for that. Right? Because that is history. Not the Angolan part. That's the hijack they throw in there. I've already done, shown the research. He sailed to he sailed to Virginia in 1621 aboard the James. See, now he sailed to Virginia aboard the James. Where was the James coming from? The Virginia Muster Census of 1624 lists his name as Antonio, not given recorded as a Negro in the notes column. All right, we just got that. Historians have some dispute as to whether this was the Antonio, later known as Anthony Johnson. As the census lists several Antonios, this one is considered the most likely. So now they're making up a whole Angola thing and they're trying to link it up because these people are not supposed to exist. They're not supposed to be black people, owners, plantation owners for free or indentured servants. They never taught you about indentured servitude. They wanted you to think Kunta Kinte. That's all they wanted you to think. All right. Johnson was sold as an indentured servant, though. That's quoted that we can research that to a white planter named Bennett to work on his Virginia tobacco farm. Slave laws were not passed until 1661. In Virginia, all right, he wasn't a slave because it wasn't even there. It didn't even exist until 1661, really. Prior to that date, says hijack Africans, so-called Africans, right? People of color were not officially considered to be slaves. People of color were not officially considered to be slaves. All right, we got many quotes here. And this is where it brings us. We've read this indentured service in the U.S., right? Indentured service and talking about white Europeans. We've read this in the last video. All right, go get it, PBS. This is history. Such workers typically worked on their limited indentured contract for four to seven years to pay off their passage, room, board, lodging, and freedom dues in the early colonial years. Most Africans in the 13 colonies were held under such contracts of limited indentured servitude. With the exception of those indentured for life, they were released after a contracted period with many of the indentured receiving land equipment after their contracts expired or were bought out. Most white laborers in this period also came to the colony as indentured servants. Again, most white laborers, all of them, all the white laborers that came were indentured servants too. Let's not forget about the white ones, okay? They're letting you know. 
Antonio almost lost his life in an Indian massacre, says in 1622, when his master's plantation was attacked. The Powhatan, who were the Native Americans dominant in the tidewater of Virginia, were trying to evict the colonists from their lands. The Powhatan was like, yo, you guys are in our lands. Get out of here. They attacked the settlement where Johnson worked on Good Friday and killed 52 of 57 men. The following year, 1623, Mary, listen to this, a Negro arrived from where? From England. Remember, from what ship? Aboard the Margaret and John. This is historic. You can research that. A Negro from England. A Negro from England. Again, Mary, a Negro from England. Again, Mary, a Negro from England. Not Africa. That was his wife eventually. All right. She was brought to work on the same plantation as Antonio, where she was the only woman, it says. Antonio Mary married and lived together for more than 40 years. All right. So I'm going to uh, go ahead and uh, verify that information. Uh, we read on Wikipedia, you know, general information. But again, a lot of the info is, is correct there. We just got to go look for the sources. Now, this is the book. It's uh, the original list of persons of quality emigrants religious exiles political rebels servant men sold for a term of years apprentices children stolen maidens pressed and others who went from great britain to the american plantations all right this could be anthony antonio could have been one and mary could have been these are abducted people undesirables that were in england not necessarily african i'm going to prove to you anthony the first black slaver all right, in the USA was from England. Nowhere does it say that he was coming in from Africa as a slave. He was an indentured servant coming in from England. This is from the 1600s to 1700s list with their ages, the localities where they formerly lived in the mother country, the names of the ships in which they embarked and other interests in particulars. Okay, from John Camden Hutton. This from 1874. So I go to page 241 of this book, and it says here the muster of the inhabitants of Waris Kojak, taken 7th of February 1624. The muster of Mr. Edward Bennett's servants. Again, whose servants? We just read in Wikipedia, right? It says here Johnson was sold as an indentured servant to a white planner named Bennett. Was he really white? So-called white. Remember what free white man. I'm going to prove to you what Bennett means, who this Bennett is. So again, the muster of Edward Bennett's servants, okay? He came under James, right? So it says, these are all his servants. He had some that came in on the ship, the London Merchant, one of the Adam, the James, John and Francis, the Guifty, and the Margaret and John. Now, pay close attention. What does it say here? Antonio a Negro, Anthony, right? He had a Anthony Johnson, Antonio, Antonio, the Negro, right? Mary and Mary, his wife from the Margaret and John. This is historic. Two years later, a year later after him, I believe, uh, she came in Mar on the Margaret and John. Again, this was coming from England. All right. And they, where were they living? Waris Kojak, Waris Kojak. Waras Kojak, Waras Koki, Warwick Squeak was officially formed in 1634 in the Virginia colony, but had already been known as Waras Kojak County before this. It was named for an Algonquin-speaking tribe that was part of the Powhatan Confederacy. The county was renamed in 1637 as Isle of White County. 
Isle of Wight County. You got a lot of ancestors going back there when you do your genealogy. Now you know the original name of that place, and it's a Powhatan, if anything. Any indigenous people there are Gonquin speaking Powhatan Indians after the island in the English Channel. All right, so they named it after there. Now, down here it says on the history, and it starts talking about who was first there. Right here it says the first English plantation in the region dating to 1618 was that of a Puritan merchant Puritan who's the Puritan Christopher Lawn all right you're just telling me that's a white man merchant who's the so-called merchants and a Puritan a lot of them were crypto Jews crypto Moors a lot of the Puritans were Moors right they were being persecuted by the Catholics so they came to America for religious freedom several other Puritans also settled nearby who who also is a Puritan Edward Bennett again who was Edward Bennett the one who employed Antonio Antonio the Negro who's coming from England all right again Johnson worked for a white planner so-called white now nah, he's Bennett Bennett is a Puritan an English merchant right another merchant who's the merchant huh and a free member of the London Company the London Company was among those who got land patent and founded his plantation in 1621. He named this plantation Wairoskwoki, after the river which the indigenous people called by that name. He used their own name and claimed and made his plantation where he brought Antonio Anthony Johnson. His plantation suffered high fatalities of colonists in the Great Massacre of 1622, losing 53 persons. A total of 347 colonists were killed that day as the Powhatan tribe tried to kill and expel the English. So again, this is a primary source. This is muster rolls from the 1600s listing Antonio coming from England to work under Edward Bennett. That's history. That is history. He eventually got his freedom and got his own land and his own slaves do you understand what you're seeing right now he did not come from africa dodge the hijack without all that angola talk he was not one of those first 16 19 negroes a lot of scholars and historians try to say or hint that he might be one of the 16 19 20 odd negroes that came in from the caribbean that were stolen from the caribbean right but he was actually listed here antonio a negro under edward bennett that's where he ended up it has to be him logically we're not going to start adding in conjectures and all this other stuff to this he's coming from england we're not going to do what um, jabari did with guinea jim right and saying that hey, oh he was a scotsman but he was originally from africa but there's no history of that we're not going to make all that stuff up right antonio negro was coming from england he came on the james he came on the james in the james all right in the james ship 1621 and his wife came on the margaret and john 1622 they both went to work in the isle of white or the wardis kojak plantation of edward bennett before they gained their freedom and became the prominent johnson uh, negroes right that owned land all right all right so real quick just to refresh our memories again we got to remember what we've learned in the past videos we got to stop believing or thinking that all europeans that came were pale-skinned people and that all your names were slave master names and all that 
We've gone over the information in this book, Jews and Muslims in British Colonial America, a genealogical history. Um, remember, we read the whole chapter, chapter three, Virginia, first and not so English, not so English colony. What they mean is that a lot of these uh, people had Sephardic, Moorish surnames, and it didn't seem like they were just, you know, your typical so-called Christian English, pale-skinned Christian English, all right? Now, in part of this book, it says here, as before the ship stopped first at the Canary Islands, a land with a large converso Morisco population. All right, that was from chapter two, which we broke down as well. Upon reaching the North American mainland near Cape Fear, the ship's log discusses Captain Aubrey and Captain Bonington, Sephardic surnames, a trading family later active in Jamaica. The list colonists, the list of colonists left to settle at Roanoke is given in Appendix C in the original spelling of the time with a bit of decipherment. The pattern seems clear. Can names such as John Gostigo, Antoine Rousse or Rousset, Thomas Parry, Joseph Borges, Spanish surname, and Bennett Baruch, Bennett Baruch Chapel, not to mention Dugan Gans, our friend Joaquim Gans, be those of typical Britons? Obviously not. Obviously not. Bennett, Bennett remember, that's Anthony Johnson's supposed uh, owner, right? He was a Puritan. He was a merchant. We already got too many hints to know this most likely is a colored person, crypto Jew, crypto uh, more. Just real quick, we're here in the book of Jewish and crypto, crypto Jewish surnames, okay? Crypto Jewish surnames. So down here, just correlating against his Bass eventually moved to Virginia himself, as did Edward Bennett, Baruch Blessing, Baruch Blessing, a well-established London merchant, Baruch Baruch Bennett is Baruch is the same says so Bennett belonged to the large group of Jewish surnames based on the biblical Baruch Baruch blessed in Hebrew here we're in a, uh, the web.archive.org with an article that's been archived here regarding the Waroskoki Koyaki uh, plantation of Edward Bennett just want to go says here chief among the Puritans Puritan cryptos who were among the first to settle the Isle of White County was Edward Bennett, former elder of the ancient church of Amsterdam. Amsterdam, who was in Amsterdam, remember? Son of Robert Bennett, a tanner of Will Welpscombe, Somerset. He was christened in the parish church of Welpscombe in 1577-78, being the 15th and last child in the family. Bennett married into the Bourne family of Somerset and is often described in the records as being a wealthy London merchant. We already know those were the Sephardic Moorish people who were the wealthy London uh, merchants. Edward Bennett fled to Holland during the Puritan migrations and became, by his wealth, a principal pillar of the ancient church. All right. Edward Bennett had a hand in settling over 600 people in the Isle of Wight County. Bennett and his associates Richard Wiseman and Thomas Wiseman were members of the Virginia Company. In addition to his position as wealthy London merchant, Edward Bennett was the owner of a large fleet of ships which traded with Virginia. Right, So he had all these ships. He had money. Again, Sephardic Jew. Who had the ships? He was also commissioner of Virginia at the Court of England. He came to Virginia at times but apparently did not become a resident, leaving the management of his lands to his nephews Richard and Robert Edward Bennett also had two brothers to die in Virginia, Robert and Richard. The brothers and nephews are often confused. When Edward Bennett returned to England shortly after 1628, his nephew Richard became the leader of the Puritans in Virginia. 
Richard Bennett and the Puritan colony moved to Nassimon, which was largely populated by Puritans. All right, so there was Puritans or cryptos all over the place, not just in not just in New England. You know, Pilgrims and Puritans weren't just in New England. Okay. All right, so again, just wanted to give a little history of Edward Bennett, the uh, employer or so-called master of Antonio. All right, Antonio or Anthony Johnson, who was coming from England. That was. It was a Sephardic Jew. He was also a colored man. So you see, it, it didn't start with Anthony. So dodge the hijack. And that's one of the main things I want you to uh, remember. All these people around this time were colored people, mostly. And the Indians, everybody's colored. So it's not about complexion during this time. All right, so just real quick, just to uh, correlate here, a little bit of info, general info on the James, the ship that Antonio was on. The ship James made several trips during the early 17th century Great Migration out of England, out of England, not Africa, and never went to Angola, to the New World. It is unclear how many ships were named James during the Great Migration, as the name James was very popular in England during the reign of James I. It appears that James landed right around the New Year because some of the passengers reported as landed in 1621 and others in 1622, most likely due to winter conditions. The first few of the ship were servants of Edward Bennett, okay? The wealthy London merchant, Sephardic Jew, Bennett Baruch, all right? That had paid for over 800 servants, 800 servants to travel to the New World. He paid Europeans, not Africans, 800 of them, so they can travel to the New World to work on his plantations and who had already established his plantation so they had a place to stay all right a lot of them were his friends a lot of them might be him family all right hey come over i got a plantation i got a job for you you work for me for seven years you get your freedom i can help you do it all right passengers down here says antonio a negro servant to edward bennett antonio all right all right so before we go here we got um i actually try to build uh the tree for anthony johnson you know, I'm starting way back. It's not as easy, you know, when you're all, all the way here in 1600s, but a historic person like this and this family of the Johnsons, you know, do have some kind of records and uh, people, you know, have tried to build these trees because I did get a couple of hints. I just want to show you guys what I have, what I did find here real quick. So uh, we're going to Anthony Antonio Edmund Johnson. All right, and I know I got this shield here. So in the Johnson, a family crest is saying he was born in Lincolnshire, England. Remember, he was coming from England. So most likely he could have been born there, right? Like we know they moved to Maryland, right? In the later years, we read that. All right, just want to show you what other family members had for uh, Anthony Johnson. And uh, just so you can see, I'm not the one just making this up. So... This family had Anthony Edmund Johnson, immigrant, right? They had the Edmund too. And of course they put Angola, Portuguese, possess Africa. This could be straight up Portugal right away, you know, but we know he's coming from England. So that's conjecture. When you go into these people's uh, trees, right? Let me show you. So this is this person's tree. They have no proof that he was born in Africa. In fact, they have signed about arriving in Maryland, Anthony Johnson, immigrant. Like it just says he arrived in Maryland in 1665 here. It doesn't say from where. All right. 
So what sources does this lady have to say that this person was born in Africa, other than the narratives that they give us, the same ones from always, right? Everybody's from Angola. All right, so another family has Anthony, one of the first to be enslaved in Virginia colony in 1621. He was never a slave, right? He was an indentured servant. Now they're putting the on the James. So remember, the James was coming from England, so they did have that right. And enslaved by Edward Bennett Johnson, who married Marie, freed by 1640. So they put the whole history in the name right here, right? And of course, they put Angola, even though they did say he's coming on the James. Now they put Edward Bennett as the father. You see that? So they don't know really much what they're saying. They just, uh, a lot of this is, you know, you got to take with a grain of salt. Uh, but there was some interesting information here, you know, as I was going along. Um, like this one right here, it listed Juan de Angola Johnson as the father and Mary de Soyo. If you switch the Y for the T, you get de Soto, right? De Soto, Mary de Soto, Juan Johnson or John Johnson. And of course, they add the Angola. And of course, when you go to these people trees, they don't have no sources to prove that the, him or his parents are coming out of, you know, Angola or Africa. The records, as you can see here, Anthony Johnson, Northampton County, Virginia Pioneer, 1651. Where does that have to do with anything in Africa? And then we got the immigrant uh, going into Maryland. Same record. Right. And then again, other family trees. They don't have no sources for these people being. But where do they get these names from is the interesting part. And we keep going. And then we got Anthony Edmund Johnson. This person has him being born in Lincolnshire, England, which makes more sense. Him coming out of England. Okay, and they got James Johnson and Elizabeth Travis. I didn't see no records for that. This family also had Juan de Angola Johnson and Mary de Soyo, Edmund Johnson. But everybody seems to know that he had a middle name or something like that called uh, Edmund. He was referred to as Anthony and Antonio. And these people got Juan or John, Mary de Soyo. Uh, now, in the gallery for Anthony Johnson, we got all the stories that we've, of course, heard. Uh, and read already Anthony Johnson was the first prominent black landholder in the English colonies and you know we got all these stories attached so I know I'm in the right uh, person of course they got uh, a drawing we don't know if that's it um, we got some images like this the first American to own slaves was a black man all right so this is on ancestry we already went over the information for his wife Mary Mary I did get a lot of hints talking about a specific Mary Peddleton and Heath, Mary Pendleton and Heath, the Mary Johnson's wills. We got wills attached here with her stuff. It says here, John Case, the first American slave. None of this stuff uh, in these wills or anything like that, it says that she's from Africa. And when you go into different trees for her, you can see that Mary Johnson, they try to put West Africa. Again, she was coming from England. We know that on the Margaret and Johnson uh, uh, ship. And you see Anthony Johnson right here. They have Mary Jane Peddleton. So I'm still researching, making sure it's hard to find any info. I'm going to just leave it here for now. Uh, we know that they were coming from England, though. So it makes sense that they like this family would put that she was born in Buckinghamshire, England and died in Accomack County, Virginia. Uh, they have her parents as Edward Peddleton and Marjorie Thomas. And it keeps going. But a lot of people, you know, also listen as Heath, you know, verifying all that. But it's here and there, bits and parts. As you go further down in the line, uh, it does get a little more historic. 
we have all these people listed in the wills and all the uh, websites we read, like the free African-American uh, oil boy Mija was reading uh, to confirm that these are the kids. You can go into these kids uh, and you can see different records attached to them and facts like Richard uh, Johnson. As you can see, they attach the free African-American uh, information that they have here where they list Richard. As you can see here, Richard Johnson, born about 1632, was one of the five persons his father claimed had, right? His father, which they're talking about, Anthony Johnson, all right? Again, this is historic stuff here. This is historic stuff. Okay, and we got John Johnson, his son, and uh, Joanne. Um, it says John Johnson married Lady Ducombe's boy. I'm still verifying that. She got 11 hints here. I got to go through, all right? But I want you to pay attention to their uh, child, another Joanne, right? Joanne Johnson. I'm going to show you guys who she is and who she married. So again, remember, this is uh, Anthony Johnson's granddaughter. So these are all colored people, right? So-called Negro people. Joanne Johnson from 1660. Her husband is John Puckham, right? Or Puckahome from the Natticoke tribe, supposedly. We're going to read a little bit about that uh, right now. It says here, Puckham family, John Puckham, born, say, 1660, was an Indian who married Anthony Johnson's granddaughter, Joanne Johnson. And that came up when I was doing the tree, all those hints, all this stuff was attaching in Stepney Parish, Somerset County, Maryland. John Puckham, an Indian, baptized by John Hewitt, minister on the 25th day of January, 1608, Two and the said John Puckham and John Joan Johnson Negro were married by the said minister G 25th of February. All right, so that was when they got married. So as Clayton Torrance surmised that John may have been from the Moni Indian town, which was not far from the home of Joanne Johnson's likely father, John Johnson of Wicomico Creek. All right, that's the one we just saw, which is Anthony Johnson's uh, son. And again, that's her father, so she's his granddaughter, remember? And Thomas Davison suggested that the name Puckham may have been derived from the Nanticoke Indian village Pukami. All right, so he might be from that village who are Nanticoke Indians, which then existed in northern Somerset County. John Puckham may have been deceased on the 13th of June, 1699, when Joanne Puckham bound her sons, John and Richard, as apprentices in Somerset County Court. You see, they were bounding their own kids. That was normal. Just like Abraham Lincoln by his dad, uh, Benjamin Franklin by his dad, William Ellison, the f one of the first black major sla uh, slave, uh, black slave owners, right? South Carolina, William Ellison, remember? He wasn't a slave. He was apprenticed by his own dad to learn a trade, the gin business, right? All right, so back in the tree, we don't really got like much on John Puckham. I was trying to do more research. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and definitely do more uh, digging, see what I can find. They just listed his parents as Nanticoke Indian of Moni, Pocahontas Village, and Sarah. Sarah Nanticoke Woman. That's his parents. Hmm. How she gets Sarah? Again, the Hebrew name. Now, it says in this article here at Moni Indian Town, aka Manny or Moni Indian Town. The records of Maryland and Somerset Co. failed to identify the native people living on the Great Many River and Creek. The village is mentioned in the patent granted to Nehemiah Covington in 1665 for 300 acres called Covington's Vineyard. It says, It is possible that the native people living on the Great Moni were part of the Manokin subtribe or band of the Pocomoke Paramountcy. 
The area is only five miles northwest of the town located on the Trading Branch and the Manokin River. It is interesting to know that a small community about three miles south of the location of Manny Indian Town on Mount Road 363 is today called Moni. All right, so they might be actually Pocomoke or Mounsi and not Nanakoke, but if they are, as the Pocomoke Nation and Eastern Woodland culture of the Algonquin language group is historically identified as the first people of the rivers of Pocomoke, Anemesex, and Manoking, and the Bay of Chincoteague. The Pocomokies were likely engaged by Europeans prior to Captain John Smith's 1608 exploration. It says down here the territory of the Pocomoke took in what is now Somerset, all right, Maryland, and Worcester counties of Maryland, and extended into northern Accomack County, Virginia. Towns and villages took the name of adjacent rivers, creeks, and bays, or vice versa. Pocomoke lands were greatly consumed by the encroachment of European settlements, Johnsons, during the 17th and early 18th century. Except for surviving villages at Rivernecks, the Pocomoke were driven onto reservations, including Askimini Kansen near Snow Hill, Maryland. It is through intermarriage of Europeans and Pocomoke people of the villages in these necks that the man mantle of leadership has been perpetuated and survives.
called the California Historical Society Quarterly. This is volume 28. This is from 1949. The writer first came across a word suggesting the name of California in the German law book, Der Sachsenspiegel, probably written by Eike von Rebgoch, about 1230 AD. In modern German, the passage reads, all right, and it's giving you the uh, German uh, translation or the original passage from you know, the, the book, law book. Uh, in English, it says here, translated into English, the sentence runs somewhat like this. No woman may be an advocate nor plead a cause before the court without a guardian. This privilege was lost for all women by California who misbehaved before court, being angry because she could not get her will without an advocate. Whoa. <laughs> so wait a minute. What are they saying? What is this law book from 1230 AD is saying in Germany? What is it saying? This ain't no uh, romance. I thought we were just talking about romances, right? It actually writes California. You can see the uh, German translation says California too. All right, California. Right? And it's talking about a woman who was misbehaving in the court. So she made all the women lose their rights to be able to plea or advocate without a guardian. Wow. All right, so this California must have created some chaos, huh? This Califia. All right. The Sash Spiegel, all right? Sash Spiegel is a compilation of law as practiced and recognized in the then Saxon part of Germany. Because of the charity of its language and its precision of expression, it quickly became popular in Germany. Not only what was it copied in numerous manuscripts and became the forefather of other German law books, such as Duschenspiegel, Spiegel Duschter Dulut, <laughs> and Schwachwem Spiegel, but also was translated into Latin, French, and several Slavic languages. Altogether, several hundred manuscripts exist of these various related medieval works, whose influence is said to have extended even to Sicily, under the rule of Emperor Frederick II, who was also king of that island and possibly as far as Spain. At one time, some doubt existed among scholars as to the priority of these three principal German law books, but it seems established now that Schwarzenspiegel is the earliest, while the Schwarzenspiegel dates from about 50 years later, with Duschenspiegel acting as the connecting link. Now, continues says the two later works are certainly based on the Saxon law book, yet they show departures from their main source. Not only those made necessary by the difference in the law of the three German re regions, but suggesting consultation of sources not used by the author of the earlier, Christian Spiegel. The only manuscript of the Duschen Spiegel that exists today omits the name Californium from the passage altogether, thus depriving it of all relevance you hear that right so they're saying that these law books the third one that came out the third edition just took out completely califia's name california's name so the whole point of the law has no relevance because it was referring to what happened with queen khalifa all right possibly 
the writer of the manuscript, possibly the writer of that manuscript, not familiar with the story of California and not knowing what the Shoshan Spiegel referred to, just left it out. Maybe, or maybe they just did it on purpose. Medieval copyists are known to have resorted to such drastic means in case of doubt. Other copies of the book might have been more complete in this respect, but since no other is preserved for us, we cannot check the point. All right. So remember, we're reading from the, uh, a book, you know, basically published and promoted by the California Historical Society, very scholarly book about California. Look it up. All right. But letting you know, all right, 1230 AD, they were already talking about Queen California and how she was going against the court. All right, so they had to make a law about it because they didn't want no other women like her basically making them look bad. All right. The numerous manuscripts of the Schwarzbend Spiegel, on the other hand, not only contain with variations and spelling the California passage in full, but they even embroider on it by adding that the lady in question was a Roman noble woman. So she was a Romani Roman from the promised land noble woman. What are we talking about? From America? California? All right, let's keep going. And that her objectionable behavior consisted in showing her naked posterior to the king. Oh, so she mooned the king. She wasn't having it with these clowns. She was like, you know what? Talk to my butt. <laughs> posterior. Talk, sorry. Talk to my naked posterior. <laughs> Thereupon the latter, after consulting with his wife's attendants, established the rule that no woman should ever be permitted to be advocate nor plead her case before court without her guardian or what? A legal representative appointed by the court? <laughs> So who, who would be her guardian? What does that mean? The explanation of this expanded version of the California episode in the Schwarzenspiegel may be that the author, wishing to be more explicit than his Saxon predecessor, consulted a source of the anecdote not known to Eike von Reckel. That fits in with the general assumption that Eike knew practically no Roman law. The California passage being usually quoted as the only example of Roman influence in his work. While the composer of the later book, writing at a time when that law had begun to penetrate into Germany, already had access to works containing the California story and its Latin original. As will be seen, this assumption would also account for the names used in the later book. One difficulty remains, however, since the known Latin sources do not contain all the details mentioned by the writer of the Schwarzbenspiegel, he must either have invented them himself to make the episode more vivid and, and more to the taste of his contemporaries. All right, so they're saying he might have made up that extra part where she mooned the king and she was Roman, you know, but it makes sense because she is from the promised land. She is noble. All right, and if, if somebody, you know, show their posterior to somebody they don't respect, if they're, especially if they're being disrespectful or they're trying something, you know, that's not going down with her. All right, so continuing, or he found it already given in the expanded form in some intermediary source which has been lost to us. So he's saying maybe he has some inside knowledge, inside info, all right, that he knew 
that the previous author did not know in the previous version of it. The sources of Roman law became available in Germany only in the later Middle Ages through Latin excerpts or translations and adaptations made by foreign scholars, especially Italian and French. A Latin manuscript of that sort is preserved in the monastery of Godwick in Lower Austria. It mentions a Calfurnia indisciplinatissima. <laughs> I almost could uh, interpret that. It almost sounds like they're saying uh, Queen Caliph or the California who is basically undisciplined, indisciplinatissima. Because <laughs> when you say tissima, it's like a lot. But does that seem to elaborate further? According to the editor of the manuscript, it was written about 1170 by a Frenchman, probably in Paris, and was designed as a short course in Roman law for the use of the clergy. All right, so again, they found a manuscript, right, in French, in about 1170, that said Calfurnia, Indisciplinatissima. All right, I already told you what I think it means. All right, so let's see what they say. It says, it is said to be one of the oldest comprehensive presentations of the theory of Roman law known in medieval literature. All right, now listen to this. This is so interesting. So, you know, Roman law, and it has something to do with California and Queen Khalifa. All right. From this, it appears barely certain that the story of California used as an argument to rationalize the forbidden of women to plead before court was widely known lawyer's anecdote. All right, this was known, this was law, popular in various parts of Europe, at least since the end of the 12th century. We're talking about by the end of the 1100s. You see how old this is, you see, this is history. This ain't romance only, this ain't plays. Where do they get ideas for movies and plays? Come on. What were the Roman sources of this anecdote? How did it originate? And how did it pass into the medieval traditions? There is no doubt that one of the earliest and most important sources was the work of the Roman writer Valerius Maximus, who lived during the first century of the Christian era and wrote his work, Memorable Facts and Sayings, during the reign of Emperor Tiberius. It was intended as a kind of source book of historical anecdotes for use in the schools of rhetoric. Although of no great literary value, it became very popular in the following centuries through extracts and translations. One of the best known of these is Petrus Cantor's Verbum Abbreviatum, written about 1187 in Paris. Too late to have been the source of the Godwick manuscript. In free translation, the original Latin of Valerius Maximus, rendering the anecdote, read thus. Caja or Caja, Afrania, wife of Senator Licinius Bucio. All right, so you see this? She's Roman. Afrania, Afra, Africa, Afrania, his wife of the Senator. These are all Romans. Who are these Edomites? So it says that this Caja, Afrania, having a passion for lawsuits, always pleaded her own cases before the praetor, not because she lacked defenders, but because she was full of impudence, because she t 
tired the tribunals by shouting or rather by barking. She became the best known example of pettifogging of her sex. Her name became abom abominable. To characterize moral depravity among women, one says, this is a C. Afrania. She lived to the year in which Caesar became consul for the second time together with P. Servilius. In talking of such a monster, history should mark the time of her disappearance rather than that of her birth. All right, so that was a passage from this letter from 1187, all right? Now, continue with the book. It says, it will be noted that in this story, the name of the disreputable lady is C. Afrania, not California, and that her misbehavior differs considerably from that mentioned by the medieval writers. This rather disqualifies Valerius Maximus as a direct source of the medieval versions, but the story is more logical than in the latter because it assumes the right of women to plead before court until that right was abrogated by C. Afrania's impudent conduct. There is, however, the possibility that the record of C. Afrania became known among the lawyers of the Middle Ages through the Roman law books themselves. Valerius Maximus' anecdote reappears in the writings of Domitius Ulpianus, a famous Roman jurist of the second century AD, who supplied about one third of the contents of Justinian's digest. Through Justinian's famous code, which was translated into French about 1135, the alleged reason for excluding women from the right to plea may have be become known among the early students of Roman law in the different European countries, even without direct reference to its earlier literary occurrence in Valerius Maximus. Ulpian gives the name of the offending woman as Carfania, which is evidently a contraction and transposition of Valerius C. Afrania and can very well be the direct antecedent of the various forms of the name in the Schwarzschild Spiegel manuscript. But it still does not explain the California of the Schwarzschild Spiegel, nor does his short statement contain any of the vivid details with which the medieval authors adorn their versions. We are thus forced back to our previous assumption that these are either the product of the German lawyer's robust imagination or that they were found already made to order in an intermediary source of which we have at present no record. Continuing, it says, in addition to the possibility that the name of California may have entered Spain directly from Roman literature or by way of the German law books, there exists still another. To trace this, we must return to German literature, namely to the Narrenschiff, Ship of Fools, of Sebastian Brank, which appeared in 1494 and at once became a literary sensation. The first German book to attract wide attention in Europe, it was within a few years translated twice into Latin, three times into French, twice into English, and twice into Dutch. Its phenomenal success lay in the fact that it expressed the temper of the time better than any other contemporary publication. Also, no small share of its appeal was due to the numerous woodcuts accompanying the text, which made the book the most elegant print of the 15th century. Actually, The Ships of Fools is not much more than the translation and compilation of passage from biblical and classical literature, reapproaching various kinds of people or fools for their particular weaknesses or vices. 
the many chapters, each dealing with some special folly, are loosely held together by the fiction of a ship in which all these fools are embarked. Incidentally, the Ship of Fools contains the first literary reference to the discovery of a new world by Columbus. Sebastian Brandt, the author, was a lawyer of Strasbourg who had become a university professor and publication expert in Basel. In addition to his knowledge of Roman law, he had first-hand acquaintance with medieval German literature, as evidenced by his edition of Freydenk's Bacchenheit, a work of the early 13th century. He thus had ready access to the Caja Afrania, California material, and he actually used it in his narrative shift. The passage in question is contained in the chapter on wicked women, line 41, and it is quite short. In quote, it says, One, throwing soul in Redding, Bill California. All right, and that's the uh, original language right there. It says, This sentence shows that California, rather than Afrania, or any of its derivatives, was the name for a talkative woman that survived through the Middle Ages, right? So, California, not Afrania. California. 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 All right? It might also indicate that Sebastian Brandt, the lawyer, knew of her through his readings of the Schwarzenspiegel rather than directly from the Latin sources, either Valerius Maximus or Justinian. Brandt's narrative shift was first translated into Latin under the title Stul T. Fera Navis by Jacob Locker, sometimes referred to as the Philomuxus Suebus in 1497. With the help of Brand himself, this Latin version, which became the basis for translation into other European languages, constitute a free adaptation of the original rather than a literal rendering. Some parts were actually expanded and show that result of additional research done either by the translator or by Brandt. Locker's Latin text of our passage reads as follows. California, Nudum. All right, so this Latin. And then it says, which might indicate an acquaintance with the expanded form of the story found in the Schwarzenspiegel. Yet on the margin of the Locker version, we find cited, and then again, which refers to Justinian, who, however, does not include the naked posterior. The actual source of Locker's statement is thus not quite clear. When we turn to the early English translation of Brian's work, which appeared in 1509, the passage has assumed the following form. Words, wordies among white men is common and rife. When fear of shame from many gone is quite so one California, in a case plaintiff's tithe, his bear's tail showed to the huge in this, his bear tail, her, her, her bear tail, <laughs> posterior. All right, so remember in the beginning, it told us that the Esplandian was the source, that Spanish uh, romance. But we can see here, this is in 1509, because the Esplandian was written in 1510. There was already mad, mad references to California, all right, in the Middle Ages, in Europe, all over. Continuing, it says, this finishes our tally of California's antecedents and European literary tradition. From now on, we are confined to speculation. 
It is possible that the name or related form of it was known among medieval lawyers in Spain, as well as in Germany. We know that Justinian Roman law was received in Spain during the 13th and 14th centuries, and that the great Spanish legislator of the Middle Ages, Alfonso X, the wise, issued his most renowned legal work, the Siete Partidas, in the year 1265, and that it was framed in imitation of Justinian's pendix. It is therefore also possible that the California anecdote became known in Spain at an early date, the California anecdote. Possibly the German Schwarzenspiegel itself or a similar book introduced the form into Spain, though we must consider this as less likely. But it is quite conceivable that the Latin or French versions of the Ship of Fools, there was no translation of the book into Spanish, carried the name into Spain and brought it to the attention of Montalbo. The fame of the book, the time element, and the striking similarity of the names are in favor of this theory. Taken from one of the sources mentioned above, but only vaguely remembered in its implications, the harmonious exotic name may have given the Spanish author the idea of making use of it in connection with his imaginary island. It may be of significance that the greatest Spanish jurist of the late 15th century was Alfonso Diaz de Montalvo. But this might, of course, be a meaningless coincidence. Further researches along the lines enumerated below can alone answer these questions. 1. Establish, if possible, the links connecting the Valerius Maximus story of Cajafrania with the medieval versions. Establish similar links between Justinian and the law books of the Middle Ages. Find the immediate source of the Schachenspiegel version, the Schwarzenspiegel variant, and the Godwick manuscript. Show if and how the confusion between Siafrania and Calpurnia arose. So you got to prove that. Trace the Latin or the medieval version of the anecdote into Spanish legal literature. Prove the connection, if one exists, between any of the known occurrences of the name and its use in Multavos Las Sergas de Explandian. It is certainly a worthwhile task for scholars in their respective fields, which might not only resolve the mystery still enveloping the name of this state, but would probably also bring to light many interesting and as yet unsuspected interrelations among European literatures of the earlier period. All right, so again, that was the uh, article in this uh, California Historical Society Quarterly from volume 28, uh, 1949. Again, that was page 23 and on. And so I thought it was interesting um, because it basically letting you know that the name or that name, that word was around way before that uh, supposed source, which was the Esplandian in 1510, supposedly, where they got the name California. So it was already uh, around before that. His his book was actually a copy from another Portuguese ro supposed romance. All right. So um, the other interesting thing is the story they have behind it and how they have this whole Roman anecdote. This whole law was based on some incident that happened with some powerful woman, right? That basically defied the court and, and maybe mocked them. All right. And they had to make sure that they didn't happen again. And it's funny how they relate California or Khalifa to this. Uh, a lot of you probably have heard of um, Don Levy and his uh, YouTube channel. I think it's awesome, uh, you know, because I'm a history buff and all that, and especially when it comes to America, right? And uh, yeah, he's showing um, basically 
all these palaces and all these buildings that were like you know built you know before like you know supposedly the, the world's fair right uh but um it's crazy how they'll say that they build these build uh you know these uh palaces and temples and you know made out of marble just for the world fair like where you get all that marble from all those statues and all that right and and, and then you're saying that's from the world fair only and then it was temporary so and then you took it down so it was just for the world fair you build such an luxurious palace right made out of marble and then you take it down just because just it was for the world fair it just doesn't make sense especially when you read the history and, and, and when these towns were settled to like san francisco and then you see that they tell you that the building was probably built like 20 30 years later after they first settled so how did they get all that material over there in ox carts and all that you know it's something that we don't even ask or think about but these places in all over the americas right in the chicago all over there was palaces there was kingdoms the spanish had maps they made that shows all these uh ancient towns you know the reference of cibola the seven cities of gold right aslan tulan kivira right the kingdom of anion the kingdom of Prester john that's all right here all right and uh what you're looking at right here in the screen is basically it says 1894 san francisco midwinter international exposition this was supposedly temporary you see all right pretty crazy stuff all right so again this is from john levy's channel fair use go check them out subscribe and like that's today all right you're saying you only build it for the world fair this is this is california this is the kingdom of queen califia what you talking about this is the kingdom of kibara the golden place all right it's pretty crazy let me just Look at look at this place. Look at this place right here. Take a good look. All the statues. Look at everything. There's like some Egyptian looking stuff right here. On the right, do you see it? Look at that. And they say they just build this temporarily for the World Fair. Dodge the hijack. So it's like they say, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, you know. Shame on me, right? Are we practicing cognitive dissonance with certain things? All right, look at these places that are no longer standing. There's neighborhoods on top of these places now. All right, he's explaining, John Levy, you know, what he thinks, you know. Yeah, very logical points, you know. If you check out his channel, his video, you know, I agree with him. Uh, this is the uh, Hearst Castle. I mean, this palace, I mean, this castle is like majestic. This is the inside right here. You know, some of the inside. And the main thing about this is that there's statues of women all over the place in here. And, and goddesses and all that. Alright, so look at this one right here with bows and arrows. Who's this right here? They're going to say that's the hunter, huntress, Diana. But again, where did all these gods originate? In Atlantis, aka America, Amarica, Amarukan. All right, we all we're just talking about the Promised Land, the Hesperides, the True Old World, or what the Greeks called the Western Ethiopia. 
right? And uh, I mean, this palace, I don't know, you know, it has a funny story, but look at this. Look at this. This is in California, right? Look at this indoor pool. And uh, I was trying to look for like construction pictures of the place. I was only able to find this one and this one, but it's of, of the same place. This could be a remodel or this place could have been an addition, but those are the only two pictures I found, you know, still don't, I don't see any, you know, construction pictures of this, the temples right here, right? Or this, look at this, this entrance right here. And again, this is a book I got. So all these statues for, that are in the inside, the dining room, all right? Look at this, real castle, real palace, all right? There's a lot of places like this all over the U.S. I found out some, uh, they showed me another place. I forgot where it was, North Carolina, I think. All right, mansions, right? Look at this, it's a little dark, all right? So yeah, again, you know, perspective, right? Perspective, because um, again, this is the promised land. I guess to so Google that, that's the Hearst, Hearst uh, Castle, if you want to check it out. All right.